Hey everyone, this is Free, and you're listening to Super Smash Hose. where we smash the patriarchy one episode at a time. Today I'm really excited because I have Dr. Tour, the founder of the IUD and Women's Clinic in Calgary, Alberta, joining me today. Dr. Tour, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Farine. So yeah, I was just teasing you. I said my uh, superhero alter ego is the Doc Tour. Uh, but yeah, you can call me, it's Repinder Tour is my name. I'm a family physician and been in practice for over 20 years and have had a special focus on women's health for the past 14 years. So can I just start with a broad question? Why IUDs? What attracted you to this specific form of reproductive health care? Yeah, so IUDs um, fall into the category of what we call long-acting forms of birth control. Um, and so there are forms of birth control that you do something once and then it gives you birth control for an extended period of time. And because you don't have to do something every day or every time you have sex, they are over 99% effective. Um, And in Canada, IUDs were the two main sort of options within that long acting um, category. Uh, But the exciting news is that in August, um, there was a third option, which is a subdermal implant, which was also introduced as well. Uh, But because they work so well, um, they are our gold stars for birth control. And another thing I noticed that you really advocate for is reproductive health care in immigrant communities. So can you talk a little bit about that and why it's so important? to situate reproductive health care within certain communities and cultures? Yeah, so I mean, certainly attitudes around sexuality and reproductive health care can be different uh, depending on um, the cultural backgrounds. Um, And the seed for this was really planted when I was in medical school. We were learning about cervical cancer. And I asked my mom um, if she'd had her pap smear done. And she said, yes. And I said, when? And she said, well, I think it was when your brother was born. My brother was probably close to 20 at the time. So she had not been going every year um, as she was supposed to be. And, you know, I asked her um, how come, you know, she hadn't gone. She said, well, she had a male doctor. She didn't feel comfortable seeing him for that. And then I asked her, are you not worried about getting cervical cancer? And she says, well, it's Gismuth, it's fate. If it happens, it happens. And I started asking my aunts and my cousins, and a lot of them were not going for their pap smears for a lot of the same reasons. So you know, a really great story just to sort of illustrate some of the barriers that women were facing in accessing um, care for something as simple as a pap smear. So we opened up the Northeast Calgary Women's Clinic in 2007, um, which is to help address some of these culture, gender and language barriers. Um, And we had started with about four doctors, we spoke South Asian languages. So we thought that's who our you know, target group would be, but we were really surprised to find that 50% of our patients were actually Canadian born women. And so that all women sort of had a um, preference maybe to see a female doctor for, you know, sensitive things like reproductive health care, but maybe didn't have a place to go. Mm -hmm. I actually had my own experience um, with pap smears and IUDs this summer, which is actually how I found the IUD clinic. Uh, I hadn't, I'm 23 and I hadn't had a pap smear before. And you know, it, it was just kind of came up at the dinner table one day. I kind of asked my mom, I was like, when are you supposed to get a pap smear? And she kind of went, I don't know, Um, you know, kind of a similar conversation. She was like, I don't remember the last time I had one. She was like, I don't, you probably don't need one yet. And I was like, hmm, that, you know, doesn't sound right. I'm sexually active. I probably do need one, Um, which led me 
to actually ask my doctor these questions. Um, so I found it really interesting when I was doing some research online and, you know, coming across this idea that there is a barrier. When there is a barrier, how do you talk about things like reproductive health care? Specifically, you said, you know, you and your team speak different languages. You speak South Asian languages um, and other languages. But what happens when in these languages there isn't actually the vocabulary around reproductive health care or the vocabulary is very stigmatized? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I moved to Canada when I was four years old. Um, and so my, um, you know, grasp of Punjabi is really just my basic conversational Punjabi that I grew up speaking with my parents. And so certainly did not talk a lot about sexual reproductive health issues with them. Um, and so I've had to just kind of learn as I go. Um, but I think it really helps just to keep things very matter of fact, right? Um, that, you know, sex is something that, you know, it's it's part of a normal sort of healthy relationship and it's not something we should be embarrassed about, um, you know. And so I think I had been asked to speak um, on Red FM, which is, you know, South Asian radio station um, about sexually transmitted infections. And it was the prime time sort of 9 a.m. time slot. Uh, my host was a male and he was really, really nervous talking about you know, these sorts of things. Um, and what we decided, I said, you know what, why don't we just address the fact that it's uncomfortable to talk about? Let's just start with that, right? But the fact if we don't talk about it, then we're leaving ourselves at risk, right? And so I just kind of take it from a very scientific, biological perspective. You know, we really talk about, you know, when you choose to have sex, you know, and you don't want to be pregnant, what are the best options for you? But the decision of, you know, when to have sex and who to have sex with, that conversation, I think, is best had in families. And so, you know, we as medical doctors just kind of excuse ourselves from that situation. So have you ever, you know, come across barriers where, um, like, for example, I know when I was a teenager, and my doctor recommended putting me on the hormonal birth control pill to regulate my periods. Um, my mom was really concerned about certain myths that she had heard in the immigrant community that, you know, you can become infertile or... Um, just lots of like myths that weren't necessarily based on science or facts, but it kind of created a block between her and my and my doctor, and she was really hard to hold on to those myths. Yeah, um, I mean, so that myth, I'm not sure where it started, but it seems to have sort of transgressed amongst lots of lots of cultural groups sort of um, that are outside of North America. So I've certainly seen lots of South Asian women who come in with that sort of, you know, somebody somewhere must have taken the birth control pill and then maybe didn't get pregnant afterwards. Um, and so there seems to be sort of this propagation that, you know, perhaps it's, it's sort of leading to infertility issues. And I've heard that from, you know, Chinese women, Filipino women. So I'm not really sure. I certainly know that the birth control pill is really well embraced in North America and, and in Europe, but not so much in other countries. Um, so, but I think the best way to address it is just to discuss. So, you know, we go over sort of options. Um, birth control can be a little bit um, overwhelming. There's lots of options. And so what we find is we really need to first identify is what is a woman's reproductive health needs, right? So when does she actually want to be pregnant and how important is it for her not to be pregnant until that time? And if a woman tells me, you know what, I want to get pregnant in a year or less, and if I got pregnant sooner, it's not really a big deal. There's lots of different options that would be appropriate for her. And a woman who tells me I don't want to be pregnant for at least a year or more, and it's really important for me not to be pregnant until I'm ready, those women are really well suited for what we call the long-acting forms of birth control. 
So I think you just kind of have to have those conversations, you know, based on their needs, I'll make a recommendation. I'll go over the basic sort of, um, you know, descriptors on what the birth control methods are, how they work. And then I'll ask them if they have any questions. And that's a really great time for them to bring up, you know, any concerns they might have had, anything they've read outside. We certainly encourage people to, you know, to be familiar and do their research, but to always, you know, pass it by a trusted medical professional just to know, because online, obviously, there's lots of information. It's hard to know what's truth and what isn't. Um, And so then we usually just go through, you know, any of their concerns. And, you know, if there is a concern, I'd say, yeah, you know, that can happen. This is the chances of that happening. Or no, you know, that has been proven to not be true in clinical trials. On that note, um, and again, this is a lot of stuff I found online, so I don't know how true it is, but I noticed that there is raising, um, rising, sorry, concern related to hormonal birth control pills um, being prescribed to people with PCOS or endometriosis um, and kind of the growing realization that there's a lot of negative side effects that go along with this and almost kind of an argument that doctors in North America and Europe overprescribe the pill for non-birth control reasons. Do you think there's any truth in that statement? I think, I mean, the birth control pill was introduced in 1960. And it's, I mean, the whole history of the birth control pill is really, really interesting because it was introduced at a time where birth control was actually illegal. So it was illegal to sell birth control, to talk about it, to dispense it. Um, And that law didn't actually change in Canada until 1969. So when the birth control pill came out, they actually had to market it for a way to treat painful periods because they weren't allowed to sell it for birth control. Um, But women at that time realized that it gave them unheard of control of reproduction compared to the other methods that were available at the time. Um, And so it became very, very popular. Um, It's a medication that's probably the most studied medication, um, you know, in sort of um, in medical terms. So it is a very safe medication. Um, The concerns really come around. I mean, it's, it's a pill that you take orally. Typically, it's got two hormones, estrogen and progesterone. And estrogen can make your blood sticky. And so sometimes that can lead to things like blood clots. And that's where the concerns really come around hormonal birth control as far as serious risks or serious side effects. Um, But the way that it works is that those two hormones get into your bloodstream and they basically, um, they stop your ovaries from releasing an egg and they kind of um, shut them down or quieten them up a little bit. Um, And so in a sense, they're kind of overriding your system. So you've got, you know, these sort of higher doses of hormones going through your system and certainly lots of side effects that can sort of be experienced by women. Um, And so... I find that, you know, I mean, certainly in 1960, when the birth control pill came out, it was amazing. It was, you know, technologically groundbreaking. It was, um, you know, women, it was on very, very high doses, but women didn't mind because it was the best option available at the time. But, you know, when you look at millennials, so a lot of the long acting forms of birth control became available after the year 2000. And there is a different um, mindset around those things. And so women today, what I find is maybe are not so keen to have systemic hormones or higher doses of systemic hormones, because maybe they don't like the side effects, right? They might have some mood, you know, issues or um, sometimes, you know, breast tenderness, other things. Um, And so that's where the long acting forms of birth control 
I think really um, work well because there's non-hormonal options, there's local hormonal options, and there's, you know, lower dose than compared to the birth control pill options as well. With the, I mean, I don't know if this was just my family doctor, but when I was getting my IUD placed, I asked for the non-hormonal copper IUD. Um, and I was actually informed that because I've never been pregnant or, you know, given birth that I wasn't eligible to have a non-hormonal IUD. So is this something that, um, again, is different doctor to doctor? Another thing that, you know, I was told by my family doctor, who wasn't the person who inserted my IUD, but did prescribe it to me, was that I should book to get my IUD inserted when I'm on my period. So I did exactly that. When I actually went to get my IUD inserted, the doctor who was inserting it, she actually kind of moaned. She said, oh, yes, doctors always say, you know, book to get it. Um, inserted when you're on your period, but I find that that is also the time when it's most likely to fall out. So again, kind of these discrepancies. Yeah. So what you're bringing up is a really good point, um, is that, you know, even medical professionals sort of hang on to some of these myths as well. Um, so IUDs have become more and more popular probably in the last 20 years. But what that means is a lot of physicians may not have sort of learned a lot about them in their medical education. And so um, certainly part of our work was not only to educate women, but also to educate healthcare professionals as far as, you know, um, what are the true risks and concerns with you know, long-acting birth control, and what are the things that might sort of um, be, again, myths that are being propagated. Um, and so your question about the copper IUD, so unfortunately, um, you know, the information you got was not correct, but, you know, any woman who does not want to be pregnant for at least a year or more, and it's really important for her not to be pregnant, is eligible for, you know, all of those options. So nothing based by age or, you know, whether they've had previous pregnancies, Certainly, you know, sometimes there's some specific health concerns or health conditions that you might have that may not make you well suited for a particular method, uh, but nothing to do with sort of your previous pregnancy history or even your partner status. Um, and the information about the period, you know, really that's historical. Basically, we, we want to have some reassurance that you're not pregnant when you have when a woman comes in to have her IUD placed. Um, and so if she's on her period, that's one way to sort of, um, you know, give us some reassurance, but it's not the only way, you know, if she does not have sex from the time her period starts until she comes in, we'll have some reassurance that she's not pregnant. If she's not had sex for a few weeks and we do a urine pregnancy test, again, we'll have some reassurance that she's not pregnant. So, um, yeah, so, you know, some of that information is partially correct, but not fully. Um, and so certainly we're working towards sort of a um, standardized um, education program for healthcare professionals, just so that patients are getting the right information. And I would just say, you know, um, for your listeners that if you are wondering, you know, I would say, you know, go to a clinic that does a lot of these, right, because they will have the most updated information, they will probably be sort of up to date with recommendations, and you're more likely to get accurate information from that. So on that same point, you know, where there's already discrepancy in what doctors know, there's clearly an even bigger discrepancy in what the general public, the the demographic you're trying to attract into your clinic actually know. So where does the intervention come from? How 
how is your clinic approaching, you know, um, women about reproductive health care and getting them into the doors in the first place? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, our goal is always to give people the right information, right? So um, certainly, whatever women want to choose is completely up to them. But we want to make sure they have the right information to make their decision, right? Because if they're getting partial information or incorrect information, then that might change their final decision. Um, and so we do focus a lot on education. There's a lot of women who show up and, you know, they've had a conversation with their doctor, they purchased their ID and they show up and they're like, okay, I just want to have it placed. But, you know, we will often still go over all of the basics. And oftentimes they're like, oh, I didn't even realize there was two types of IUDs or I didn't realize this. And so sometimes, you know, once they have that information, you know, their decision might be sort of altered and changed. Um, and so what we really encourage is that women become champions for each other. So when we had first started doing a lot of this IUD work, um, we actually were having um, educational sessions for our patients. So when, you know, before they place an IUD, they would come, it would be an hour long, we would have about 20 to 25 women who were interested. So it was only almost like a group doctor's visit. So like a doctor's visit, but everyone met together. Um, and there was a lot of advantages of doing it in that way. So one was that, you know, we would spend an hour going through IUDs and I would actually go through some of the history of birth control, which I, of course I find fascinating. And all, a lot of the women realize all the struggles and what happened and what went into, you know, the women before that really worked really hard to decriminalize birth control. So even that story is a fascinating story to tell. But then we would go through, you know, the long acting forms of birth control in a bit more detail. And then we would have time to ask questions and women would ask questions that other women didn't even think about asking. And we would have fun and we would tell jokes and so I would tell them, you know, you're going to leave happier and smarter. And that's a pretty good promise for a one hour session. Um, but our goal was to really get women excited about birth control, because if they were excited about it, they're more likely now to go and discuss it with their friends. And so that was our key thing was to really try and spread the right information in a way that was easy to understand, that was matter of fact, um, but allowed women to make more empowered choices. We were really concerned about the um, number of unplanned pregnancies that we were seeing in our practice. Um, and that was based on, you know, what we call the fine, fine approach. You know, you go to your doctor, they say, what are you using for birth control? You know, you might say, okay, the pill and they're like, how's it working? Fine. Okay, fine. And that was it where that might not actually be the best fit. You know, if you are not planning to be pregnant for at least a year or more, and it's really important for you not to be pregnant, then you're probably better suited for a long acting form of birth control. So that would be the better conversation to have is, you know, here are the options that are best suited to meet your reproductive health needs. You know, you should at least be aware of them, whether you choose them or not is certainly up to you. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, for us, it was really about the education. You know, we really want to empower women with the right information. Um, and so, you know, our patient profile is really interesting. We find our patients are really active partners at our clinic. You know, we rely on them to tell us, you know, when they like stuff, if they think we could do stuff better or, you know, what they're hearing. And, you know, we kind of, we get a lot of sort of, um, in-house referrals, you know, we'll see often a mom and a daughter and a sister and an aunt, like, you know, or a friend because, you know, people are feeling comfortable. And again, our goal is just to get the right information out. So on the topic of education what do you think could improve in terms of you know education for for students like I'm talking about people in high school who are taking sex education right now I don't know how much things have changed since I was in school it was not that long ago but you know I, stuff changes but we didn't really talk about the IUD we talked about condoms and we talked about the pill and very briefly 
And so when you talk about patient um, profiles and patient demographics, do you find most of your patients to be older than high school students? And if so, do you think it is necessary to also be talking to these younger people who are sexually active um, about their options? And how can we do that? Um, And is school the best place to be having those conversations? Yeah, so um, my son is 20. And so when he was in junior high, you know, they went through sort of birth control options. And because, you know, we talk about this so much in our household, you know, he put up his hand and said, well, what about IUDs? They're great, you know. And so he gave his class a little, you know, tutorial on IUDs because he had seen me talk about them so much. Um, but I agree. I feel like the curriculum, um, you know, the sex or the birth control contraceptive curriculum in the schools might be a little bit outdated. Um, and so certainly, you know, some efforts to work with the education system would be good. Um, in 2020, in January, we did start a new non-for-profit. So it's called Project Empower Her. So our website is www.projectempowher.ca. Um, but our goal is to try and improve sort of Um, awareness and access around long-acting forms of birth control. So one of those endeavors is to try and improve education directly to patients. And I think schools can certainly play a role, but I feel like just, you know, having maybe some good education online, there isn't really anything that's sort of Canada-wide that is really good, reliable information about birth control, especially about long-acting forms or very, very detailed um, so that's one of our goals is to get that information out um, to to patients. One thing you may not be aware of or your listeners might be interested in is when you look at IUD usage across Canada, it has slowly increased in the last sort of five to seven years. So Surdy is sitting at, you know, maybe 6% up to 10%. But Alberta, our usage is at 14% and it is the highest in the country. And when you look at our acceleration or uptake rates, it's it's very, very high. And when you compare us to more developed, you know, nations or areas worldwide, we're actually leaders there too. So you know, this is just the passion that we have, I think, and that spreads, you know, it spreads to healthcare professionals, it spreads to our patients, it spreads to, you know, women and people in the communities. And so, you know, I don't think it's an impossible task. It just takes a little bit of perseverance and some excitement around it to get other people excited as well. That's amazing. I didn't know Alberta was kind of leading in this in Canada or even, you know, internationally, but as somebody who now has an IUD, best decision of my life. So fully advocate for it. Um, You know, another question I had that's a bit sticky and a bit of a bigger one and probably something that's a newer challenge is when we talk about reproductive health care, I think historically, we always frame it in terms of uh, very gendered language. We talk about women, women's reproductive health care. And how can we start to change the language around reproductive health care to be more inclusive to trans identities um, or individuals who, you know, are not using um, she, her pronouns, even things like we we talk about feminine hygiene and um, menstruation in very gendered terms. Um, And even, you know, your, your clinic is called the women's clinic, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But as we're seeing growing changes in society, how do you think reproductive health care um, can kind of alter the way it's structured to be more inclusive? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think that's something that we have pondered as well, you know, um, that how do we describe what we do? And so we could certainly say sexual reproductive health, but because we were trying to address some of those, you know, um, gender barriers that 
you know, especially immigrant women were facing around seeing a male doctor and we were all female health professionals. And so our focus is really on female reproductive health care. And so maybe that would be sort of a better um, descriptor. Um, and so we sort of say, you know, we can help you with anything to do with your female parts, right? So um, anatomically, if you have those female parts, we can certainly help you regardless of what pronouns that you're using. Um, but I agree, I think some of the terminology, you know, probably needs to be reevaluated and maybe updated as well. Um, but it is a little bit of a struggle because even for our clinic, like, you know, I've always thought about what what could we use as an alternative, right? So, you know, if it's not a women's clinic, is it a female parts clinic? You know, I had some patients suggest, well, uterus owners, but then I thought, well, what if someone's had a hysterectomy and they no longer have a uterus, but they have other female parts that they need to get looked at? So it's a little bit, you know, um, I guess, you know, things are never crystal clear when you're embarking on this type of a journey. But I think as long as, you know, you're receptive and you're um, able to be accommodating and try to create sort of a comfortable environment for everyone involved. And as long as you're kind of flexible to to grow um, and move with, you know, whatever currents are happening socially, that I think that would be OK. But certainly that's something that will be an ongoing process. Yeah, it is something even I've thought about, and I the hysterectomy thing came up to me in my mind as well. Um, and there are so many questions around biology and terminology. Um, and yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, but definitely a very sticky question that has no real right answer. Another question I had is, you know, it's quite a big one. So again, we don't have to get super deep into it. Um, it's kind of about racial stigmas in healthcare and how oftentimes the experiences, especially of women, but women of color, are erased um, in in the world of healthcare. And this is really coming to light um, with COVID as well. So do you have a little bit you can speak about that? Yeah, I mean, so I guess for us, you know, it, it, it's not so much the conversation is maybe particularly around race, you know, it's around economics, it's around system literacy, it's around um, language, you know, so there are certainly, um, you know, barriers that a lot of women might face, right? And so I guess, you know, for us, that's kind of what we were set up for, that we really wanted to be there for the women that were having a tough time getting their women's health care needs met at, you know, the standard types of places. Um, and so I think for us, you know, we're always looking at, you know, how can we best serve some of our more vulnerable populations? And that could include, you know, racialized immigrant women, it could include Aboriginal women, it could include, um, you know, women, you know, young kids in the foster care system. So there's lots of different needs. And so, you know, we tend not to focus on race alone, because I think then you can sort of miss people out. Um, but certainly we understand that race, you know, can be indicative of, you know, more barriers as well. So, you know, I find reproductive health care is the one thing that really ties everybody together, right? You know, everybody's at risk of pregnancy, regardless of what race you are, what economic background you are. So if you're having sex, there's a chance you could get pregnant. Um, and we know that it's one of the most common sort of healthcare needs in the population, that 70% of the population is having sex, but not wanting pregnancy. So 70% of the population is at risk for an unplanned pregnancy. And, you know, in, in the context of COVID, if 70% of the population was at risk of something, you think we would know a lot about it. You think we would be so savvy and we would know about all of the types of birth control. We'd be able to name off the long actings. We'd know how they worked, you know, um, and that's some 
some of the work that we do because I think people don't realize how diverse those needs are and how widespread those needs are. Those needs are also longstanding, you know, that women will be at risk for pregnancy for about 30 years of their lifetime. And so it's not something that's just going to be at risk for a year or two, but, you know, a big portion of their life cycle. Um, and if we don't do birth control well, the consequences can be life altering, right? So having a pregnancy when you're not planning it, let's say if you're at university, that can really shift your future and how it's going to look. And so we really think that, you know, birth control is one of the most important sort of healthcare, um, you know, endeavors that we can sort of embark on. But yet I don't think it's gotten the respect it deserves in that sense, right? Because I think, you know, I mean, if you look at it, you know, medicine only came into it really in the 1960s when the birth control pill became available. Before that, it wasn't even the realm of medicine at all. It was just, you know, through old wives tales or whatever, people would just manage this on their own. So, you know, we haven't done too badly, but, you know, we actually haven't been, you know, what I call contracepting for a really long time. It's only been about 50 years that we've had modern birth control. I mean, the other thing that your listeners might be really interested in is that, you know, it's certainly not by accident that the feminist wave of the 1960s, you know, began after the birth control pill was introduced, right? Because without birth control, women are expected to have 10 to 15 pregnancies in their lifetime. And if they're doing that, they're not doing much else, right? And so birth control really opens up options for women. It, it empowers them to make, you know, life choices that they'd want without having to worry about the, um, you know, the risk of an unplanned pregnancy. And um, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Well, I was talking about starting the feminist. So yeah. And so I think that, you know, it was the science and technology that allowed for that social change. And a lot of people don't realize that, right? Like, why was this, you know, this big feminist wave in the 1960s? It's because the birth control came out and it gave women options and allowed them to even consider things like careers um, and getting into the workforce and stuff. And so, you know, it was sort of, um, you know, one thing led to the other. And I think people don't realize that often. Right. So another question, you know, that I had, and it's kind of the opposite of what you're saying. So, you know, your argument is that um, birth control has really empowered a generation of women, which I agree with um, for the most part. But, you know, there's also this argument that birth control has been used um, specifically against minority women as a form of control and oppression. So when we look at certain Aboriginal communities and Indigenous communities around the world, um, forced sterilizations and forced IUD placements have kind of been used to control populations and has has it ever happened that these communities um in in your own practice having to engage with these communities in a more sensitive way because of the history of forced sterilization that they have faced and because of their traumatic experiences with birth control because we're so often used to hearing that birth control is liberating um but you know what about the opposite of that when it is forced on a, a minority of women as a form of population control yeah, birth control, like anything else, is a tool. So it really just depends on how it's being used and if it's being used as it was intended. Um, and so, you know, reproductive coercion is kind of that black history of birth control, right? And certainly in the 1960s, I feel 1950s, there was a lot of unethical things happening in medicine, right? There was the LSD trials, there was, you know, syphilis inoculations and racialized populations. So it was not a good time for ethics in medicine. Um, and I think, you know, our sort of um, understanding or um, sort of approach is that, you know, birth control 
counseling starts with questions. It does not start with me telling the patient what I think she needs. It's me asking her questions to figure out what her reproductive health needs are. And so we have discovered that we really only need to ask two questions, which is the ones I've kind of touched on already. But, you know, when do you want to be pregnant? And how important is it for you not to be pregnant until you're ready? And those questions are great to ask every single woman that comes in or to ask your friends or talk about it, because those are things you need to think about. You know, maybe think about, you know, school and career, university, what do you want to do? But do you think about when do you want to be pregnant and how important is it for you? Because those are the things that are going to throw you off that track. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that, you know, as a medical doctor, my goal or my job or my role is to really you know, help patients identify what their goals are and then say, okay, if you don't want to be pregnant for at least a year or more, and it's really important for you not to be pregnant until you're ready, here are the best options to help you meet those needs, right? So, you know, my role is to really, you know, identify, help the patient identify their goals and say, here is a science and technology that can help you reach that. And so let's say with long acting birth control, I can give you a 99.8% assurance that you will not be pregnant until you're ready. And that is empowering. But that doesn't mean that every teenager that walks in, I just assume that, you know, you do have to ask those questions. And there will be, you know, people who, who you know, choose not to use birth control and, and that's okay. And so I say, that's fine, but let's make sure you're on prenatal, you know, vitamins, that you're optimizing your health so that when you do get pregnant, that, you know, we'll be able to help you with that. So I think it's really important to not sort of be prescriptive um, and I think that's been a change in, I mean, not just in the culture of medicine, but in the culture of a lot of, um, you know, um, organizations and sort of um, agencies, right, that we really have to look at sort of identifying what people's needs are and then supporting them and helping them meet. Yeah, that's something as just a feminist that I, you know, have been working on a lot, not just assuming I always know what's right for other women. Um, and, and asking those questions is really critical. We've talked a lot about women today, nature of the podcast. But um, can we talk a little bit about how we can incorporate men into this conversation about reproductive health care? And what best ways there are to get men engaged in it? I mean, you mentioned yourself that your son is 20 years old and your son was talking to his high school students, his classmates, sorry, about IUDs. And that's amazing. Like, I wish I went to school with boys like that who were so engaged and knew so much. I mean, funny story, just this summer when I was going to get my IUD placed, um, my boyfriend decided to come with me. And we were just having a conversation and I jokingly asked him, do you know how pads work? Because I had seen on TikTok that boys just a lot of boys don't know how pads work and he thought that the adhesive stuck to your actual vagina not your underwear and I was, I was absolutely floored I was like what um so you know how can we get because this conversation is clearly important for both you know sexes genders how can we get young men more involved in the conversation yeah, so I, you know, certainly when I've had any kind of interactions with men, I find most of them are actually really interested in it. They just have not been invited into that conversation. And so some of those sessions I was talking about, the education sessions, oftentimes women would either bring in, you know, their partners, their boyfriend, their husband, their fathers, their uncles. And anytime I had a guy in the room, I used to get really excited because I knew that they were going to ask questions. And they were so fascinated with birth control and how it worked. And you could just tell these are things that it was just like, uh, you know, a dark area for them. They really had no idea at all. And so they sort of feel 
you know, enlightened and even more excited about birth control than the women. So I think it's really, really important to sort of invite men into that conversation as well. So it's not just, you know, something that we think about for for girls. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, those two questions, those are the what we call the empower questions to sort of help women identify what the reproductive health goals are. But there's also empower him questions, which is, you know, when do you want to get somebody pregnant? And how important is it for you not to get someone pregnant until you're ready? And so again, I think it's really important to sort of have, you know, boys and men to start thinking about those things from a very young age. And so again, making sure they have all the right information so that they can support their partners sort of um, in those decisions. Um, certainly male, you know, uh, focused birth control is something that we have not accomplished yet. And I'm not sure when and if that will happen, but that would be great to have another option. You know, we may not have a lot of uptake, but even if you can get some men to be interested in it, I think it needs to be reversible. You know, vasectomies are the one form of birth control that men can use, but it's restricted because, you know, it's not considered to be necessarily a reversible procedure. So not something that a young man would want to do and then take the chances to, to see if it would get reversed as he got older when he actually wanted to have um, children. But I think um, it's just inclusion. Like, I don't think there's barriers beyond that. I've, you know, the men that I've interacted with are actually, you know, really excited and really happy to be a part of that conversation. Um, I had a patient that asked me a great question. She uh, wanted to get an IUD and she said she did not have coverage, but her boyfriend did, um, but they weren't living together. So they weren't codependents, according to his plan. But yet it was a form of birth control that he was choosing for his um, relationship. And so why could he not purchase the IUD for his partner, right, if that was a birth control they chose? Um so there's all these questions that I think, you know, as we start to have these conversations that, you know, I think will sort of um, precipitate or push, you know, some of these changes forward. Um, but, you know, I agree with you. I think we do need to include men in this conversation as well. Obviously, women are going to bear the brunt of the reproductive work, so they need to be especially savvy about it. Um, but, you know, it takes two to get pregnant or two to get accidentally pregnant. So definitely having men in on that conversation is really important. That is such an interesting question about the insurance. I'm just kind of like mulling it over in my brain right now. And I mean, her logic is so impeccable to me. It it makes sense, right? Like if they're deciding together that that is the, um, the healthcare or the reproductive healthcare that they want, it seems silly to me that just because they're not living together. But again, yeah, the, these are questions that I feel like are definitely going to come up more and more in society as things are evolving. So last question I kind of wanted to touch on, um, and I know it's a new one, and I know that there probably isn't a lot of data, etc. around it, but it has to do with COVID and reproductive health care. Um, we're, we're hearing how, you know, there's a few questions that kind of fall under this umbrella. One is how has the COVID pandemic impacted people's access um, to reproductive health care? And then along with that, do we have any information about how COVID itself is going to impact reproductive health care? Yeah, I mean, so we've been dealing with this with for almost a year now. Um, and certainly, I mean, when things sort of happened in March of 2020, 
uh, we had to revamp our clinical services very quickly to still allow us to give care in a safe way during a pandemic. And so that meant converting the majority of our care to virtual care. So, you know, we were seeing obviously, um, you know, people in person just because that's how the government system was set up. Um, and when they allowed, uh, you know, new fee codes to allow for, you know, virtual care, we were able to adapt our services to sort of meet that. And so now we're probably doing about 80% virtual care, 20% in-person care. Um, and so it's been interesting because virtual access, I think, um, has really played into sort of equity of access because a lot of vulnerable women, if we're going to insist that somebody needs to physically show up um, at the clinic, um, you know, for someone to, um, to get there, they need to have transportation that's reliable, they need to maybe have childcare, they need to have some sort of handle on their schedule. And those can be a lot of barriers for, for women that are vulnerable. And so what we're finding, as long as you have access to a phone, you have access to a doctor. And so I think that's evened out the playing field um, for the vulnerable women that we serve. So I think that's been sort of maybe an unanticipated um, benefit. The other thing that we see is also geographic isolation, right? Um, there may be women in small towns who, um, in Alberta who don't have access to a high volume IUD clinic. And so again, they might be getting information that's outdated or maybe you know the healthcare professionals in their town don't provide that service at all. Um, and so for them to drive into a clinic just to get information that's you know um, in a different city might be a little bit of a big ask. But what we found is that we were seeing, you know, talking to women from all over the province. And once they got that information, you know, I mean, number one, at least they got the information, so they were able to make their decision. But number two, if they decided, yes, they wanted to do the procedure, then at least they had already established a bit of a relationship with us. They felt comfortable. And now they were willing to do that drive to come and see us to have that procedure done, knowing that, you know, our follow-up was going to be virtual as well. So I think... Um, COVID, you know, um, by offering or allowing us to be able to offer virtual care to our patients has really significantly improved access. Uh, we did find our clinic was busy from day one, just because a lot of the other sexual reproductive health clinics um, were, you know, did close. Um, so we were one of the only ones open. Um, and that kind of leads into your second part of that question was that, you know, again, you know, sex is something that's such a basic um, thing for a lot of people. And so, you know, we, we were finding one of two things, either, you know, during the pandemic, when you weren't allowed to travel or to do all these other things, a lot of people were deciding, well, you know, we were thinking of getting pregnant next year, why don't we just try this year? So one thing we were finding was there are a lot more people considering sort of, you know, reproduction during that time. Um, and then the second thing is that, you know, if you are, um, you know, under house quarantine, or you're under, you know, sort of, orders to stay in and not go out much, you know, what do people do when they're at home together, right? They're going to have more sex, right? And so birth control actually becomes really, really important um, because maybe they weren't, you know, having that frequency of contact when they were busy doing other things. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting thing, but I feel like sexual reproductive health for me, it's just emphasized that it is a core um, sort of human need when it comes to health, right? So it doesn't matter, you know, where you live, you know, necessarily how old you are, as long as you're in your reproductive health um, sort of age range. Um, but it's something that, you know, it's fundamental and it's really important and it is an essential service. Wow, I feel like I've learned so much just in this 45 minute discussion. My head is all over the place with questions, but 
you know, I don't want to take up your entire day. So thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show today and talking to us. Before we end, did you have any questions in general for me? Um, I don't really have questions for you, but I do have um, just uh, a few things for your listeners or for yourself. So um, I did do a TEDx Calgary event talking about sort of um, long acting birth control and how it empowers women. And so that should be available online in the next several months. They're just working on the reproduction. So if anyone is more interested in that um, and then just, you know, our project empower initiative, if this is something um, that's of interest or has sparked, you know, some sort of, um, you know, I guess affinity with people who are listening is just to check us out on our website, the www.projectempower.ca. Um, just to look at, you know, we're improving awareness and access to birth control, uh, but we know we can't do it alone. So we're looking for, you know, champions and partners and people to sort of, you know, resonate some of these things that we've talked about today um, into their uh, social circles as well. And just to um, confirm, Project Empower was Canada-wide, right? That wasn't just isolated to the Calgary or Alberta region. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're starting here. Um, so we, we were going to sort of... Um, kickstarted in 2020, but obviously COVID has put a little bit of a stall to it. Um, but our goal is to have, you know, um, improved awareness and access with the Canadian content, right? So mm -hmm. that, you know, if, if videos are online, that, you know, they would be more or less sort of applicable across the country. Obviously, there's different you know, healthcare policies can be more provincial. So there may be some sort of finer details that could be different, but at least, you know, having sort of some general information that can be used by Canadian women. There are some great resources that are American, um, but obviously, you know, their system is set up a little bit different. Pricing is different. Access is a little bit different as well. Um, but yeah, so, you know, our content would be nationwide. Some of the stuff that we want to do is around the access. So that might be like outreach work and that sort of stuff. We'll probably start that in Alberta first before we sort of move um, to other parts of the country. Great. Thank you. Um, and if listeners want to interact and engage with you, the best way would be through Project Empower. You guys at the IUD clinic don't have social media, do you? Um, we do not. It's it's something that we need to do. So if any of your listeners want to take that up or help us with that, we're happy to to get the help. But um, yeah, mostly it's our information's on our website. We are looking at getting some patient videos um, set up. You know, hopefully sometime this month. Um, just those frequently asked questions, some of the things that we went through today, and some of the things that you know. Uh, your listeners might have after hearing our discussions today because we haven't had a chance to even go through what the three types of long-acting birth control are and, and how they work and stuff. So we're hoping to get, you know, sort of an archive of that information um, online as well. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Tour. Um, and thank you listeners all for listening. And hopefully we can see you guys soon on the next episode.